0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The Word of God from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Anna near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This is God's word.
1: There is uh, no shortage of platitudes and sayings on the topic of resentment. Uh, I took 60 seconds to do a quick search online. Here's a sampling of what I found. Resentment is like drinking poison in hopes it will kill the other person. Resentment doesn't change the hearts of others, it only changes yours. As smoking is to the lungs, so is resentment to the soul. Even one puff is bad for you. The story before us today takes up the topic of resentment. But in order to fully appreciate it, we need to understand what's happening in the story. So I want to walk through very briefly verses 22 to 26 so you can get a picture in your head of the scene Look at it, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Okay, so Jesus, his disciples, they're out in the countryside, straightforward. They're doing ministry there, which includes baptism. Now John also was baptizing. This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, not the disciple. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Aon near Salim. Because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. So at the same time, in an adjacent location, John is doing the same thing. Preaching, ministering, baptizing. And the text makes it clear that John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, overlapped with Jesus' ministry. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So you've got John and his disciples... Jesus and his disciples, and they're all doing the same thing. John and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, all doing the same thing. And then a a third party comes along into the story, a Jew. We're not sure the origins of this. It could be a safe bet that, that this is a Jew from the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Comes to John's disciples, makes a comment or asks a question about what they're doing and how it may or may not be different from what Jesus is doing, We're not sure exactly that the topic that he raised, but it is clear from the text that whatever they talked about sparked in John's disciples some unsettledness about what was taking place. Look at the next verse. They came to John. It's John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. So after this contentious conversation with this Jew, John's disciples go to John and point out the obvious. The church of John the Baptist is shrinking. Their numbers are dwindling. People are leaving. But down the road, the church of Jesus Christ is growing. Their numbers are increasing. People are coming. And you can hear the growing resentment in their voices. So what does a leader do When she sees her group becoming embittered with resentment, what does a friend say to another friend when the acrimony starts to rise to the surface? What does a parent say to a child when he sees envy-produced resentment towards another kid? John the Baptist faced this, and we'll take a look at how he led through it how he dealt with his group. My hope is as we do this, it doesn't just offer you help in the moment. You might be dealing with resentment today. My hope is that this will offer you some resources to deal with it. Additionally, I hope to inoculate you against it, against resentment. We're gonna do that by taking our inoculation in three vaccines, three injections. Okay? These are the three injections that make up resentment inoculation. Here are the three a truth to embrace, a motto to live by, a pocket to live in. Okay? Series of three vaccines that make up the resentment inoculation a truth to embrace, a motto to live by, a pocket to live in. First, resentment inoculation involves a truth to embrace. So John spots it, he sees it leaking out their mouths. And the first thing he does is point out the truth to embrace. And that's this. God is sovereign over their lives and the lives of others. He says this, turning to them saying, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. In a theistic universe, this is a universal truth. You have what you have because God gave it to you. The person sitting next to you has what they have because God gave it to them. You have the years you've been given because God gave it to you. You have the abilities that you have because God gave it to you. You have the circumstances you have because God gave them to you. Your station in life is what it is because God gave it to you. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Now John's doing a number of things in his speech to his embittered disciples, but one of those certainly is to diffuse the rivalry. To to quell the resentment that's fueling it. He believes embracing this aphorism, this maxim, this universal truth, is critical to accomplishing that end. Getting his disciples to embrace this truth of God's sovereign rule is essential to inoculating them against resentment. Now, resentment comes in varieties. The, The one that this story takes up involves comparison. Resentment occurs when you're dissatisfied with your place in comparison to another. It involves dissatisfaction, which breeds comparing, or comparing, which breeds dissatisfaction. And this is clearly visible with what's happening with with John's disciples. Seeing the crowds leave them, flock to Jesus, produces in them dissatisfaction with their place in comparison to Jesus' crowd. Dissatisfaction breeds resentment. Resentment. So John is quick to remind his band of followers their group is what it is because God knit it together that way. Jesus' group is what it is because God knit it together that way. God is the author of their diminishing numbers. He's the author of their place in life. He's the author of their place in ministry. He's the author of their place in, in their social, professional, and economic circles. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. Now how does that inoculate us against resentment? In the next section of verses, which we're not going to go into in detail, but are are part of this section, verses 31 to 36. Um, The theme there is Jesus and God are from above. They're from above. Above, above, above. Look how many times it's used in that section. 31 to 36. Above is a repeated idea. This is where they're from. They come from above. Above, above. The one from above gives to people in meticulous and specific ways. Now how does that serve to inoculate us against resentment? Maybe an illustration is helpful. I attended a seminary in the Chicagoland area. And up to that point I'd never lived anywhere close to a city as large as that. In my lifetime. So there were a number of cultural adjustments. That, uh, that I had to make. And one of those adjustments is. Navigating traffic, through and around the city. Now, in large cities, you know this, Milwaukee has this, radio uh, stations, television stations have traffic reports, right? They have traffic reports. And I remember hearing my first traffic report. I heard terms like, Eden's Expressway, Bishop Ford Freeway, Tui Toll Plaza, Stevenson Expressway. At this point in time, I'm wondering, what happened to all the numbers, I-94, what happened to it? Where are these roads? Uh, It took me almost almost an entire year to be able to figure out how to listen to this, because it's not like they sit you down and say, okay, let me go through this with you slowly. It's like an auctioneer, right? Uh, So now, how do they get these reports? I don't know if it's still the same today, but at that time, uh, they had people flying around in helicopters, Oftentimes, you'd see them doing the report from the helicopter. And do drivers take them seriously? Yes, they do. In fact, I remember being in the car with a native of Chicago. Traffic report came on. He just turned to me and did this and then turned it up. So, yeah, they take it seriously. Why do they take it seriously? Because their information comes from above. Above. right? That's why they take them seriously. Their perspective is from above. They see the whole picture. If you hear a report that says the Dan Ryan is jammed, but the Stevenson Expressway is clear and you blow it off, you take the Dan Ryan anyway, what happens? You don't get to work on time. You miss your kid's recital. Bad things happen when you don't take seriously the report from above. God is from above. He sees things you don't see. He has a big picture view of things you don't have. You might feel strongly that taking the Dan Ryan is the best thing for you. That taking the Dan Ryan is good and right for you to have. But God's saying no. The Stevenson is the best thing for you. If you disregard His ordering of your commute, bad things happen. God has given to you what he's given to you because from his perspective, from above, it's exactly what you need. I'm convinced that if we had God's perspective from above and we had God's mind we would give to ourselves exactly what God gives to us. Existment inoculation requires this perspective. It requires embracing this truth. God's sovereign rule, you have what you have because God, who's from above, gave it to you. Second, Resentment and inoculation involves a motto to live by. So John's first words are to them, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He's not done with them. He moves on to a second idea to try to get this resentment thing figured out. He moves on to a second second idea and he says to them, I'm not the Messiah. Now, learning to say that to yourself repeatedly is important. I'm not the messiah. The next time something doesn't go your way, just whisper to yourself, I'm not the Messiah. I'm serious. (laughs) Try it. The next time you don't hear what you want to hear, just whisper to yourself, I'm not the Messiah. Now, this is actually the second time John the Baptist has said this in John's gospel Chapter 1, he says this again, which tells me this is like interwoven into his DNA. For John, this is a spiritual reflex. I'm not the Messiah. Is it a spiritual reflex for you? I'm not the Messiah. Which is the reason, by the way, John the Baptist never succumbs to resentment himself. It's a spiritual reflex. I'm not the Messiah. Now, in the context of what John's disciples see happening around him, the comment is actually rife with meaning. With their diminishing numbers and Jesus' increasing numbers, John sees this as an appropriate opportunity to remind his disciples of his non-messiahship and Jesus' messiahship. Just to get everybody straight, who's who here in this story? And John uses a parable to convey it. He talks about a wedding. The friend that he speaks about in verse 29 is probably the best man. Now, in, in those days in Judean weddings, the best man had an incredible amount of responsibility. Often contributing to it financially, kind of a wedding planner, manager, all that stuff that the best man was a part of making happen. But it was always his objective, always his goal to make sure the bride and the groom were in the limelight, to make sure that the crowd has focused their attention around them. So he's in the shadows operating. That's the imagery that John uses to try to get across to his disciples what his place is and what Jesus' place is. Jesus is the groom in this story. John is just a friend. Now, how does, how does that help us? How does that help us? Paul Tripp uh, relays an amusing story that's helpful. I want to read it to you. He writes, In 1978, I did one of the most courageous things in my life. I became a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> one Monday afternoon, the mother of one of my novice academics asked if she could have a birthday party for her daughter in the classroom on the following Friday. The day came, and after the mother's frenetic preparation, we all entered the room. She had turned our little classroom into a birthday kingdom. Walls and tables were lavishly decorated. Multicolored streamers hung from the ceiling. And a balloon within a balloon was tied to the back of each chair. At each seat was a ribbon-tied cellophane bag of party favors. The only exception was the birthday girl who was surrounded by a huge pile of beautifully wrapped gifts. At the far end of the table sat Johnny. Johnny kept doing the same thing over and over. He would look at his little bag of party favors, then at the birthday girl's mountain of gifts, fold his arms, stick out his lower lip, and let out an audible Each time, the look on his face got uglier and the humphing got more audible. Before long, he had become the center of attention and was well on his way to spoiling the party. Then the mother, one of the mothers of the kids, walked over, knelt beside him, turned his chair so that Johnny was looking directly in her face and she spoke these profound words. Johnny, it's not your party. Johnny wasn't supposed to be the center of attention. He wasn't supposed to have a huge pile of gifts. It was Susie's birthday, and everything was rightly focused on her. So we need to learn to adopt a new motto to live by. Here it is. Life is not my party. Life is not my party. I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you. Life is not your party. We weren't made for the limelight. I'm not entitled to have things go the way I want them to. I'm not entitled to get what I want. And neither are you. Life is not your party. We're inoculated against resentment when we live by this. When we learn to say and believe and live out, I'm not the Messiah. Things shouldn't be focused on me. I'm not the Messiah. So, the first two injections to inoculate ourselves against resentment are a truth to embrace. You have what you have because God, who's from above, gave it to you. He's got a perspective you don't have. And the second is you got to live by a motto life is not my party. You're not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. The third injection part of this inoculation is a pocket to live in. We have talked before about the concept of a telos. It's a biblical concept seen throughout the scriptures. Your telos is your appointed role in the world, your God given station in life, it's your God given assignment at your place of work, in your home, in your church. So for example, this telos, I want to make sure everybody's clear on this. Um, How do you know if a watch is a good watch? Well, before you can discern whether or not a watch is good, you have to know what the watch is made for, what its purpose is, what its function is. That's its telos. Only if you know what something was made for can you know whether or not it's good. So if you think a watch was made for pounding nails into wood and you use it that way, you'll conclude it's a terrible watch. If you use it to keep track of time, if you determine that's its purpose, you may or may not determine it's a good watch. Your telos is your appointed role, your function, your station in life. The role of the best man is John's telos. To a great degree, it's ours as well. It's the pocket God gave John to live in. That's the pocket he dwells in, he lives in. The best man. Now there's something to notice here. Look at verses 29 to 30. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Do you hear the repeated theme of joy in this? For John, he's full of joy. Literally, it's rejoices with joy. Joy, joy. That joy is mine. You hear the repeated theme of joy? So listen. <laughs> joy is to resentment as insect repellent is to mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. Joy is to resentment as insect repellent is to mosquitoes. Joy is the best inoculating agent against resentment there is. Uh, I ordered a pillow online uh, not too long ago, and it was the first time I had ever done that. When it was delivered, it came in a package about this size. My first thought was it looked bigger in the commercial. It's funny how we never get over that. Kids, right, buying their stuff online. It's bigger than the commercial. Here I am. It's bigger than the commercial. Well, it was vacuum sealed, of course. Opened it, and it blew up to the size that, that I was expecting. What's interesting about that to me is the only thing that was added was air. It's not like more feathers were suddenly created or more fabric was created. The only thing that went in there to get it from that size to the size it's supposed to be is air. Now listen, where there is a vacuum for lack of joy, resentment will come flooding in to replace it. Where there's a vacuum for lack of joy, resentment will come flooding in to replace it. Joy is the best inoculating agent against resentment that there is. Now there's something that we learn from John's joy. You will have exceedingly great joy When the role God assigned to you is the role you want to play, John has exceedingly great joy because the role God assigned to him is the role he wants to play. They're the same thing. The pocket that God gave John to live in is the one he wants to be in. Some of you are joyless. Because the pocket God puts you in is not the one you want to be in. And your life is characterized by attempts to claw and scratch your way out of it. Or to put it differently, you're looking out there and you want to pound in nails, but God made you to be a watch. That's why you're joyless. So how do I get John's contentment? How can I find satisfaction with the pocket I'm in? In the story, who wasn't content? Everybody? John's disciples, right? They weren't content. Who was content? John the Baptist. What's the difference between the two? Did you notice how John's disciples referred to Jesus? That man. That man. It's a generic label. There's no personal connection to someone you say, that man. So could it be their generic, impersonal, distant connection to Jesus explains their struggles with resentment? I think so. And what I want you to notice is the relationship between John's disciples' discontent with the pocket they're in and their understanding of Jesus as that man. Our struggles with resentment say a lot about us. Our struggles with resentment are symptoms that Jesus is no more than that man to us. Even if you're a true believer, we go through seasons of resentment and that is always a symptom that you're not in a good place with Jesus In that moment, he's that man to you. If Jesus is no more than that man to you, you're going to be robbed of experiencing great joy. Now, who was Jesus to John? What was Jesus to John the Baptist? What have we seen so far to this point in in, in John's gospel? Right away on the scene, John stands up on a hillside and declares at the top of his lungs, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world? That's pretty specific. Here in this story, the Messiah, the groom, someone who must increase. What is this telling us? John's connection to Jesus is personal, it's detailed, it's specific. Jesus increasing means he's getting bigger. Jesus increasing means marveling at, treasuring, fixating on, obsessing over Jesus. Jesus was so big to John that Jesus took up the entire ultra screen in John's heart. Jesus increasing is something that must happen if you're going to experience your telos. Jesus increasing is something that must happen if you're going to find joy with the pocket God puts you in. Why? Let me relate it to the first two points. Because as Jesus increases, as he starts to take up the entire ultra screen in your heart, you're going to realize that his knowledge is exhaustive and his goodness is unmatched and therefore, whatever he's given you, you're going to be okay with. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. As Jesus increases, as he gets bigger, as he takes up the entire ultra screen in your heart, you're going to realize this, this thing that you've received from Jesus is coming from someone who's knowledgeable, whose knowledge far surpasses anybody you know, whose goodness is unmatched. And Jesus increasing means you realize that this movie we find ourselves in, which is the story of the cosmos, the movie that we're in, unfolding human history, this movie that we're all characters in, it has one main character, and it's Jesus Christ. If life is anybody's party, it's his. So if Jesus is that knowledgeable and good and is the main character of the universe's story, then I want to stay in the pocket he put me in because that's best. When Jesus becomes your consuming passion, you stop pocket-hopping because no other pocket can offer you what Jesus offers you. Let's pray. Jesus, you must increase. We must decrease. This is the way it's meant to be. But Jesus, we kick against this We disbelieve your goodness. We distrust your authority. Oh, Jesus, help our unbelief. You see things we don't see. You have a picture of the world and our lives that we aren't privy to. Help our unbelief. You came to be the center of attention, to be in the limelight But every fiber of our being wants to strip that from you. You must increase. We must decrease. That's painful work. But please do it among us. We ask for your glory and honor. Amen.